It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The European Union has been in a legal fight with renegades Poland and Hungary over respect for the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary. The two countries were singled out in an EU report this week that pointed to the widening gap between their populist regimes and the bloc's democratic standards. Poland's Supreme Court is considering making a U-turn and halting a controversial disciplinary regime for judges that would comply with a ruling by the EU's top tribunal. But the Prime Minister of Hungary is proposing a referendum to push back against EU pressure to change a Hungarian anti-LGBTQ law that sparked a furious reaction in the bloc. Will the EU's executive arm start using recently won sanctioning powers to freeze funding, including COVID-19 bailouts, for the errant member states? Joining me is Ronan McRae, Professor of Constitutional and European Law at University College London. So let's start with some basics. In the United States, we have federal law and state law. How does EU law work with the law of country members? In some ways, it's actually not that different from the situation in the U.S. So like in the U.S., there's preemption. When the EU legislates in a particular area, the member states lose their right to legislate in that area, and EU law takes precedence. So under EU law, if there's a clash between National law and EU law, EU law takes precedence. And EU law will also be enforced by domestic courts. So you don't have to go to the European court for every case. In theory, your local court will enforce your EU law rights. In the United States, we have common law and then we have statutory law. Is EU law all statutory? No. So the EU law... It's really like a constitutional system. So there's the treaty, which is the founding document. That's like the Constitution. It sets out the powers of the EU, but also has a lot of constitutional principles, mainly fundamental rights principles, in it. And then there's also then the secondary legislation that's produced by the EU legislature, which is the states and the European Parliament and the European Commission together produce legislation in various areas of law in which the EU has competence. 
So then if a country's law, let's say Italy, if Italy's laws yeah. conflict with EU laws, then Italy has to change their laws? Yeah, so there's two things that can happen. First, the Commission can take Italy to the European Court of Justice and get a declaration that they've violated their duties under EU law. And if Italy doesn't bring its law into line, they can then be um, subject to a repeat unlimited fine from the court. The second way, and in ways the more important way, is that an Italian individual can go to their local court, they have a case, and insist that EU law is applied in that case. And the Court of Justice has, for really 40 years, the Court of European Court of Justice, the EU Supreme Court, has ruled that in the case where there is a conflict between national law and EU law, EU law must take precedence and in the individual local national judge must apply EU law to the case. That's what makes EU law so different from other forms of international law. You don't have to go to the international court. It's directly enforceable in your local court. How many EU courts are there? Well, that's a good question. So there are two main EU courts. There's the general court, which deals with issues about kind of uh, what you call antitrust law, um, various other areas. And then there, its decisions can be appealed to the European Court of Justice, which is the EU Supreme Court. But because the European Court of Justice has ruled that national courts have to enforce the EU law in cases before them, in theory, all of the courts of the member states are also EU courts. And what happens is the Court of Justice says that any national court that has uh, issue of EU law before it and doesn't know how to interpret EU law in the case, they can stop the case, make a reference to the European Court, ask, how should I apply EU law in this case? And the court will give them the answer and then they'll apply it. So there isn't a separate system of federal and state courts like you have in the US. Just all the member states have their own legal systems. And then there's on top of it the European Court of Justice who answers all EU law queries, but who, which expects the member state courts then to apply its rulings. When is it that the courts enforce laws and when is it that the European Commission enforces laws? So the courts will enforce EU law in a concrete case before it. So what happens is, you know, you might be fired from your work and you, you think that there's a lot of EU laws, a lot of competence in, in labor law. You may take the case to the court and insist that EU law is applied in that case. What the European Commission can do is where there's no case, just in theory there's a breach of EU law, they can they can then take a complaint. So for the Commission to act, they don't need a concrete violation in an individual case. They can follow up any abstract one. But for national courts, they would need an actual dispute in front of it. And the Court of Justice has ruled that they, they won't rule on theoretical disputes from national courts. You have to have an actual dispute involving an EU law issue before it, before the national court can invoke EU law. So tell me what happened last year when the EU's general court ordered the annulment of the 13 billion euro tax order against Apple. Why did that happen? Well, what they found was, because the EU has quite limited competence in matters of tax, but they do have a lot of power in areas called what's called state aid, which is where states giving subsidies to companies. And the European Commission had argued that Ireland's favorable treatment of Apple in relation to tax matters was so favorable that it effectively amounted to a subsidy, state subsidy. And so because EU law basically prohibits state subsidies, the European the Commission imposed that fine and said, you can't do this 
Apple has to pay back the tax. It, it amounts to a subsidy. But the general court said, actually, no, this is a matter of tax, not a matter of subsidy policy. And so they annulled the imposition of that $13 billion. So tell me how Germany's constitutional court took the EU Court of Justice on in 2020 and, and what happened there? As part of the kind of economic uh, crisis, the um, European Bank is not allowed to fund, to give money to states to kind of fund their spending. But it is allowed fixed interest rates. And the European Bank, Central Bank, during the, the kind of economic crisis, last 10 years, the bank has decided that although they're not allowed directly finance governments, they can buy unlimited amounts of state debt in order to ensure that the interest rate states are charged is not, doesn't deviate much from the interest rate set by the European Central Bank. And the German court says this is disguised financing of the states by the European Central Bank, and that, that's something that the EU bank does not have the power to do. So when a group of German politicians took this case saying the European Central Bank, by funding member states in this way, buying their debt, has gone beyond its powers. The German Constitutional Court asked the European Court of Justice, does the European Central Bank have the power to do this under the EU treaties? The Court of Justice said, yes, it does, and sent the case back to the German Constitutional Court. But the German Constitutional Court said, actually, we don't think you've exercised a strict enough review of the limits of the power of the central bank. We disagree. Therefore, the German central bank, which is part of the European central bank system and provides them the money, cannot participate in this project. Now, the issue with that is it was the first time that a national court had refused to accept the ruling of the European Court of Justice on what were the limits of the powers of an EU institution. The European Court of Justice has always said, if we have 27 states, we have to have one court, i.e. the European Court of Justice, which provides a definitive answer to what are the powers of EU institutions. And here the German court was refusing to accept that. And that went against 50 years of EU case law, where they'd been saying any conflict between national law and EU law is resolved in favour of EU law. This is a problem in itself, because they, there were worries about the European Central Bank's bond buying programme. But they've, they've kind of faded recently. But it's a bigger structural issue because if national constitutional courts start refusing to accept the primacy of EU law, then the whole system, the EU legal system, begins to fall apart. And it's particularly important because the EU is in the midst of um, very heated clashes with two member states, Hungary and Poland, over the independence of their courts. Tell us about the conflicts between the EU and Hungary and Poland. So the Hungarian government and the Polish government have enacted a series of reforms, the substance of which is to undermine the independence of the judiciary. And the European Court of Justice has issued several rulings saying because EU law requires national judges to implement EU law, the EU requires the judges are independent so they're able to enforce EU law against the government. Therefore, your measures, which undermine the independence of the courts in, in Hungary and Poland, violate EU law and you have, to, you have to disapply them. Now, this means when the German Constitutional Court, which is kind of reasonably widely respected in Europe, ruled that it was not accepting a court of justice ruling, the Polish and Hungarian governments were delighted because they were like, brilliant, our courts now will say they don't have to accept court of justice rulings in relation to judicial independence, which is what happened last week. 
the uh, Polish Supreme Court or Constitutional Court has ruled that it does not accept the European Court of Justice ruling, which said that the disciplinary chamber they have for judges, where government appointees can discipline judges for ruling against it, the European Court of Justice had said that disciplinary chamber is against EU law and must be shut down. And Polish Constitutional Court has now said, well, just like the Germans, we retain the right not to accept Court of Justice rulings if we think they go against our constitution and therefore we don't accept this ruling. So this is a, a, big, a big kind of slow burn threat to the European Court of Justice because over the years, there's been some grey areas about whether national courts accepted that EU law always took primacy, but by and large, they have accepted the primacy of EU law. And without the primacy of EU law, if national courts are not going to follow EU law and are going to disapply it when they feel like it or if they think there are sufficiently important reasons to do so, then the legal unity of the EU is really undermined. The EU is two things. It's a system of political cooperation between member states, and a system of shared legal rules. Once the shared legal rules go, if national courts stop enforcing them, then the EU retreats to being something much more like a classic international organization, rather than what it is now, which is something which is halfway between a state and an international organization. So where is the situation now with the German Constitution Court? Well, the German Constitutional Court gave itself a kind of way out. It said that, well, we don't accept that the European Court of Justice has been strict enough in policing the boundaries of the powers of the European Central Bank. But if the German bank can provide us with various factual information about how this bond buying program works, then we might be happy to accept that it's within the powers of the, of the European Central Bank. And the German Central Bank did issue various clarifications and gave the court some factual information. And the court has said, okay, well, now Germany can participate. So on the facts, the kind of danger to the bond buying program has disappeared. But at a level of principle, the damage is done because now the threat to the authority of the European Court of Justice is established when a well-respected founding member state's Supreme Court goes against the Court of Justice. Because remember... There's no National Guard in the EU. You know, when the European Court of Justice rules, while their case law is clear that there's a legal obligation to enforce their ruling, they've no way of forcing a national court that doesn't want to enforce a ruling to do so. The only thing that can happen is they can impose financial sanctions on the member state. And they are now, the European Commission this week has said that they're going to go for financial sanctions against Poland. But there is no... National Guard. There's no way that the European Court of Justice can enforce compliance with rulings. It's dependent on the cooperation of national courts. So then if Poland or Hungary says we're not going to pay the sanctions, nothing can be done? Can they be kicked out of the EU? No. Well, so they can. The financial sanctions are real, and not least because both Poland and Hungary receive very significant subsidies from the EU. So the EU is lucky in that the two countries that are kind of are creating the most trouble at the moment are both big net beneficiaries of EU spending. So they will have to pay the fine. There is new EU legislation that says when judicial independence is not respected, if that threatens the integrity of the EU budget, you can cut funding. So they may lose funding. But there is no way to expel a member state from the European Union. In fact, in that regard, a very unhelpful case came up during the Brexit process where some pro-EU British politicians took a case to the European Court of Justice asking if Britain could withdraw its 
notification that it wanted to leave the EU. And in a wider ruling, in passing, the court said, well, there's no, there's no mechanism for kicking a member state out of the European Union against its will. So you can't kick them out of the European Union. The one thing that can happen is, I mean, the EU, because it legislates in so many areas now, labor law, environmental law, agriculture, economic policy, you know, there's an awful lot of ways in which member states can make other member states' lives uncomfortable. So over the next few months, there'll be hundreds of issues that the EU will be deciding on. If Poland and Hungary really look like they're kind of in danger of bringing down the whole system, the other member states can extract long, low revenge by blocking every single initiative that's important to them. So that is a possibility. It's not a very dramatic one, but member states are aware that there is long-term a cost for going against other member states. And the one thing we learned from the Brexit process was how much the union means to the political elites in Europe. In fact, we saw this again in the financial crisis too. There are a lot of commentators in the US, like Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz, who were wondering why the Eurozone didn't collapse. You know, the euro doesn't really make sense to have a single currency without a single economic policy. But what they underestimated is the political commitment of EU leaders to maintaining the union. They would do whatever it takes to keep it together. And in the Brexit process, despite all the fights between different member states, when one member state left, the other 27 member states formed kind of a, a block and negotiated. There was no deviation. There was no picking one member state off by the British so EU member state governments are very committed to protecting the union. There will be a high political price for Poland and Hungary to pay if they're seen as threatening it. But there is no way of expelling them if they breach EU law. What may happen is courts may start, national courts may start saying that they don't recognize Polish and Hungarian decisions. So a lot of EU law is the duty to recognize the judgments and decisions of other member states. And what may happen is, over time, other courts may start saying, well, actually, we don't think your courts are independent, so we won't give you that benefit. There's already been a case from Ireland years ago where a Polish prisoner, EU law makes the transfer of prisoners between states much easier, a Polish prisoner was meant to be sent for trial in Poland. The Irish court said, we're not sure we can send you, actually, because we don't think the Polish courts are independent. And tell us a little about the conflict with Hungary and its LGBTQ law. The Hungarian government has really for the last 10 years been undermining judicial independence. They've placed the wife of a ruling party politician as head of the judiciary. They gave her the power to promote and fire judges and allocate cases. Things various. They suddenly dropped the retirement age of judges by 10 years to get rid of ones they didn't like. So they've been attacking the independence of the judiciary in Hungary for a while. But there's also been a cultural clash. And recently they passed a law that really bans the provision of any information about gay or transgender people to people under 18 and links it by implication to pedophilia. That has sort of gone down very poorly in Western European states and in the Baltic so there's a real divide on this issue, and the European Commission is trying to sue Hungary for that. The difficulty they face is, you know, the European Union only has competence in certain areas, and that kind of area is something that the EU has fairly limited competence in relation to. But they're trying to think creatively about areas which might be touched by this law, like some elements of broadcasting law or things like that, where the union does have competence. And they're, so they're going to try and take a case on that basis. So interesting. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Ronan. 
That's Ronan McRae, professor of constitutional and European law at University College London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The pandemic's test of telework for office workers has reached an inflection point as return to work mandates are put in place and legal battles loom over employee requests to stay at home. Joining me is Aaron Mulvaney, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. Are a lot of companies mandating that workers return to the office or is there a split among major companies? There absolutely are a lot of companies that do want a return to the office um, for their workforce. Um, while they're being cautious, there's been a there have been CEOs that have come out like JP Morgan or um, Microsoft CEOs that have said office culture is very important to how they operate. And um, then there have been other companies that have been more flexible and are suggesting permanent hybrid options. And there are really big names in, in that group too, like Twitter, Facebook. Citigroup um, have considered kind of more flexible options as well. So there's definitely a divide among even major corporations of how they're responding to kind of this new normal. Which workers have to go back to work, have no excuse, and which workers can make a legal case? Right. And, And to be clear, since you brought this up, we're, of course, talking about office workers who were kind of teleworking during the whole the entire pandemic. And the reason that's important is because, of course, there's a lot of workers out there that, you know, were essential and needed to go in. And there was a business necessity to being actually in person. And so there is a case to be made. So by and large, an employer can fire anyone who doesn't follow a return to office mandate. Um, most private employers have that right. Um, but... There are exceptions to that because there are protections under the American Disabilities Act. And if you, that's probably the most powerful one. Um, if there is a legitimate reason and a concern that a person with a disability can't return to an office, there could potentially be an accommodation that's made. And there's kind of a balancing test that comes into play if that makes it up to the court. The first thing that happens is the worker says, I don't want to go back to work because, or I can't go back to work because, and is there an internal process first? Absolutely. So the way it would work is that if there's a a mandate to return to the office, there could be, and and really this is for any kind of accommodation, like even if you want um, a more ergonomic desk, like the entire interactive process happens um, First, with your company. It doesn't always go immediately to the court, obviously. But so this would be a pretty big request. A request for telework um, when everyone else is going back um, would be something that you first bring to your company. And then they would go through an interactive process to see if that's an accommodation they can make and if that would be appropriate um, and not be an undue burden on their business operations. What kind of workers have brought lawsuits? A lot of these cases that do rise to the level of courts. Of course, it's, you know, a little early in the process, but we are already seeing lawsuits and charges filed. 
um, arguing that the company should have granted a telework request. There are different categories of them. You know, initially, when there were kind of mandates to return to the office, some people were concerned with the immediate, if they had, um, say, asthma or an immuno a disease that would made them more immunocompromised and more vulnerable to the actual coronavirus, you know, fearing going back while the virus was still very active and raging and before vaccines were widely available. Um, and then there's, there's also the types of um, lawsuits where, where people say that, you know, the pandemic exacerbated their mental health and going into an office would increase the anxiety and that capacity. Um, there are absolutely those cases as well. And there's the other type of case where um, somebody might have difficulty coming to the office because of a mobility issue or the like, and that would be something they could request and say it would just be, I can work just as well from home because I've proven, well, you know, our whole office proven, proved that we can <laughs> and try to make that request. So there, and that would be something that might happen more in perpetuity, um, potentially, um, I take it the request due to physical disability is easier to prove than the request due to mental health disability. I think typically a, a doctor would be involved in giving the information, you know, providing a note or, you know, a recommendation for what would be an appropriate accommodation for somebody with, say, PTSD or an anxiety disorder or depression. So it would be similar. And I think it's always about the remedy. You know, what is the remedy for um, making you more comfortable at work? Like, what can the employer do? They could come back and say, okay, you don't want to be around people. We'll give you your own office away from people, as opposed to having you telework. With people with mobility issues, the issue might be the lack of public transportation available or the risk that there would be at this time maybe using those. So the ADA cases always have this kind of interactive process where all these different um, factors are balanced. And then when like we're talking about when they make it up to the court level, the court will weigh those factors as well and kind of try to determine what would be an undue burden on the company. Was there a decline in productivity during the work from home during the pandemic? A lot of companies still reported um, positive numbers, you know, and there was even a study that PricewaterhouseCoopers did that said, Productivity didn't see a decline during the pandemic. Office workers, you know, effectively worked from home. Um, and I think there was kind of, um, for the pandemic, a built-in bias or fear um, that people would slack off or be lazy if they're at home, like it's a day off. And so many office workers were forced all at once to work at home. It, it kind of automatically removed that stigma, at least, potentially. Um it is interesting, though, because I think companies still hold on to and say, despite that, office culture is important, being around people is important. Our company is one about personal relationships, and we can't do that over Zoom. And so that's why it's kind of an interesting cultural clash right now. Um, but, you know, there's when we, when we talk about people with disabilities, um, there's an extremely low employment rate um, for people with disabilities. And some experts say that remote options and being like widely available could, could potentially help that down the line. And I suppose that now that workers can point to, look what I did during the pandemic, everything worked out fine, that that 
is, you know, an added boost to their cases. I had a lawyer tell me that it's just, you know, she doesn't know the full legal landscape yet. We'll see how these cases turn out in court. But it'll be so much more challenging for an employer to show that working on site is an essential function of the job because that didn't happen for so many office workers for, you know, more than a year. Um, so that that could be a potential silver lining for, you know, uh, either people with disabilities or even people with caregiving responsibilities, which, oh, you know, so it could be a bit of a silver lining from the pandemic for, for certain groups that actually benefited from teleworking. Being a caregiver, that's not what I normally think about when I think about the Americans with Disabilities Act. Is there a provision for caregivers? No, that's kind of a can of worms, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, what I would say about caregivers is we saw an unprecedented amount of women drop from the workforce, and many of them were, were mothers, um, according to you know data from the pandemic. And... I think that there will be consequences from that, and it's still really hard to actually make a claim um, for caregiver discrimination because that's not a, an inherently protected um, characteristic, at least under like the main federal civil rights laws. Like, um, I guess it, the closest claim would probably be something under Title VII if there was a sex discrimination claim. Um, but, but no, um, actually, caregiving is not covered under the the ADA, even if there's a, um, there, there was one case that, I mean, it, it's also being debated in the courts about whether um, you you have a claim for, um, if you have an immunocompromised person that is living in your house and you didn't want to fear bringing the disease back to them. Um, and that's that's also a very unclear area of the law. Um, the, the ADA doesn't explicitly protect um, people in your household that may have a disability. You write that before the COVID pandemic, employers generally won the majority of rulings about disability accommodations. Tell me about that and, and what may be shifting there. Right. And so we don't, we do have some indication that it's a harder case for a company that employs a lot of office workers to make. But we, we did generally employers won these rulings because I think it was that idea that courts were really sympathetic to a company's argument that work needed to happen in person, even if it was office work and computers can be, um, you know, the, the EEOC actually fought a case on that and they kind of had an opposite point of view or, and were trying to say that like telework should be considered, especially in these office environments. And they lost. Um, because, and, you know, if you look at courts, they happened in person so often. And, you know, and that obviously changed during the pandemic as well. So there's, there's, there's potential for a shift on, on that question and how and it'll be interesting to see how courts respond to it. Um, there was a case that happened last fall. And in a Massachusetts, a Massachusetts federal court allowed an asthmatic worker's telework accommodation to move forward, um, you know, siding with the worker over the company. And a lot of attorneys were pointing to that case and saying that's an early indication that courts may be more sympathetic to those arguments. And, you know, in that case, there was a worker who feared going back into the office because it would, she'd be vulnerable to the virus and courts, 
you know, a court thought that was a reasonable request, and she clearly proved that she could work from home for a year was something that was cited. That case did settle, so we didn't see it moving, you know, all the way through the process. But, um, but yeah, it, it should be a really interesting shift right now. Tell me about Conrad Wendelson. It's He's got an interesting case. <laughs> yeah, so Conrad um, is a disabilities rights attorney in Seattle, and he... Um, he is someone who has a disability and a, a mobility disability, and he actually said he really likes going into the office, and he's really looking forward to the return, um, and he said his staff wants to return. Um, he currently can't for his health because he needs the U.S. to reach a higher level of immunity, according to his doctors, and he's currently allowing his staff to have the option, but he made a really interesting point. He said, you know, he was able to do a full, like, argument before a federal appeals court um, during the pandemic, and that wasn't previously possible. And he said that it, right now, if the courts all shut off and refused to go remote, he wouldn't be able to really argue anymore. And he said, but that's clearly, clearly the argument against being remote and being flexible in that way or being undermined. And he was kind of interesting because he was a person who said, I totally get it. I want to be in an office, but it's just not the right time. Um, so I think I think he did have a really interesting point. And um, it'll be interesting to see if how how things change moving forward. In the April hearing of the EEOC on COVID discrimination issues, did anything come out at that hearing that's that was, you know, important? At the April hearing... There were stakeholders, there were attorneys and experts um, kind of talking about this clash that we're talking about right now. And um, they definitely did focus on a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today, about the disabilities and the ADA and the legal cases that would come up moving forward and what the pandemic would mean for the future of these civil rights um, cases and courts. Um, you know, we, I, I, there was an attorney who talked about what we were talking about, about how 60% of the cases that he has coming in from the last year related to the pandemic were about an employer rejecting telework accommodation. I think a lot of the attorneys on both sides were, were saying that there's kind of an inflection point right now for employers making these decisions about what they're going to do for a return to office, keeping all of the the civil rights issues in, in their minds um, moving forward. And um the EEOC's, you know, guidance has been slowly kind of evolving as the pandemic um, has has gone forward, and um, they've acknowledged that um, this time could serve as a trial period um, to show whether or not an employee with a disability could perform all their essential functions while working remotely, um, and employers should consider all new requests in light of this information. So it's, you know, it's somewhat vague what they're what they're recommending and their guidance is only guidance, but a lot of employment attorneys pay really close attention to how the EEOC um, advises on these issues. So um, some of them even asked for clearer guidance and more definitive um, points of view, but um, we'll see, you know, the EEOC is also the one who can bring lawsuits. So I think that's one reason they pay attention to them, but guidance is just guidance um, from 
from that agency. Thanks, Aaron. That's Aaron Mulvaney of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for the Bloomberg Law Show today. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.